I think it's fantastic in the sense that we're going to see, we're going to see tremendous efficiencies. Uh, I, it'll take a little while to ramp up uh, efficiencies in those areas where we can put technology to work. But you don't you you, you can't have a, a RoboCop out there uh, or a Robo firefighter paramedic out there. Right. It's still going to take the people, and uh, and those folks uh, understandably are asking for more considerations uh, given given the situation we have out there. We're witnessing a seismic shift as money itself is colliding with technology. It's forcing digital transformation in global capital markets. Governments aren't equipped to handle the pace of policy needs. Institutions aren't prepared for the acceleration towards digital assets powered by blockchain technology. Data science will drive more decisions as business, organizations, and leaders seek clarity. Now more than ever, we have an imperative to secure America's future. My name is Michael Hiles, and I am the CEO of TenXTS, a financial technology company. Along with my colleague, Jonathan Deaver, we explore the journey towards building the next economy. Welcome to the digital dollar. Hey, this is Michael Hiles. Welcome to another episode of The Digital Dollar. I'd like to uh, introduce and welcome my colleague and co-host, Mr. Jonathan Deaver Esquire. Morning, Mike. How are you today? Spectacular, spectacular. So, um, so I'm really super excited about some of where this conversation is going, and I know that... Um, one of the topics that we've discussed offline that I thought was, you know, relevant and then ultimately turned into this episode with our, our guest upcoming is um, the unintended consequences maybe of the haste to shut down the entirety of all economy, even the, you know, that impact on state and local governments that, you know, really, absolutely. I'm calling yeah. it the circular firing squad at this point. Like, we're absolutely. To, and that's, we're, you know, in our, and I think it was in our seven episode, we were talking about that a little bit, right. Where, you know, one of the reasons why we were big advocates for that uh, payroll protection loan, that payroll protection plan that we were really working with the, the administration on was, look, if you, if these folks aren't working, you take them out of the economy and you yank them out, what's going to end up happening is they're not paying payroll taxes That's right. and they're not paying their school any taxes, taxes or any taxes of any kind. Right. And local governments, state governments, school districts, cities, municipalities, you name it. They, if they lose a big chunk of their revenue across spectrum too, we're talking property taxes, income taxes, gasoline taxes, all of these fees and revenue sources aren't being collected. So what is that going to mean? And, so our next guest is a personal friend of mine. He's a mentor, Mike. So I've known him for a while. I met him uh, 20 some odd years ago when I was a, a wee wee law student. Um, and he grabbed a hold of me and, um, and, and taught me a bunch of different things, not only as a law student, but also about politics and about the state of Ohio. And he's got a really interesting background. His name's Jonathan Downs, and he's been a lawyer. He'll kill me for saying this, and he told me not to squeal on him, but it, it's been close to 40 years. And he's been a, a, a solid guy who's been representing the interests of cities and townships and county commissions, uh, state of Ohio itself, statewide agencies, whether it's secretary of state's office, lieutenant governor's office, the auditor, the treasurer. He's been around for quite a while and he's seen a lot, negotiated a lot of employment contracts. 
and seen the collective bargaining agreement. So he's going to be on today to talk to us about his experience, how those different things interrelate and what we can be seeing moving forward into the next couple of months. So I'm really excited about it. Um, and with that, I'm going to introduce him now. So Jonathan, uh, thank you so much for coming on today. And uh, I'm going to let you introduce yourself to the audience. So thanks again. I appreciate you being here today. Jonathan, it's great to be here. Michael, it's great to meet you. Uh, just a quick little bit of background on myself. I graduated from Virginia Tech in business administration with economics and public administration background, law school, Case Western Reserve. My first job was, was advising two cabinet members for uh, the governor's office uh, under Rhodes. And that's where I first started to learn about state budgets. And since then, I've practiced almost exclusively representing public employers from the employer side. So perspectives that I have are not just county jumbo. Uh, I will talk in general also about how it affects and impacts uh, city uh, cities as well. Uh, those who uh, rely on property taxes like libraries uh, and also some, just a brief touch on some of the state budget issues as well. But I have worked with a lot of contract negotiations, uh, budget issues, uh, been involved in layoffs, both at the state level down to local levels. When the unfortunate economic impact hits uh, a government, which the last people to lay off are government. So I've had lots of, lots of experience with dealing with the budgets, presenting them in arbitrations and in court cases, uh, from the macro to the microeconomics uh, on those budgets. So John, where do you want to begin? Well, thank you. Um, so Mike and I have, were really interested to kind of get your thoughts on the current, cur the current economic situation. You know, about a month ago, we were opining that as the ripple effect starts with the shutdowns of all these sectors of the economy, this is something that's completely brand new. I know that you and I have talked in the past about, uh, you know, the, the dot-com bust and how that affected certain segments of the economy, uh, the post-9-11, the post-2008, the recession of the 80s, and how those things were really market corrections for different reasons, but this is new. This is a brand new thing. And you've lived through all those cycles, those last four cycles. Wanted to get your thoughts about how you see local governments managing with the loss of revenue that will be coming here in, the, in a matter of weeks, if not months. Well, John and Mike, this is not like anything that I've seen having lived through and worked on the impact and the effects of changes in the economy and budget. Um, dot-com bubble took out um, property taxes this this situation is, is is affecting impacting every sector of tax or every every type of tax that public sector relies upon uh, you know for instance gas tax license plates for for roads and bridges uh, property taxes for schools for uh, townships uh, for police departments and fire departments, uh, sales tax, which is a primary source of income for counties, uh, a major, major impact there. And then, of course, income taxes for cities, which is their major, major source of revenue, but also some school districts that rely on, on uh, uh, a cross section between property taxes and, and uh, income taxes. And for those who say, well, the property tax is going to be fine because it's, the property value valuations aren't going down, begs the question of, well, who's going to who's going to be able to pay, and how many people are going to be disrupted from being able to pay their mortgage, or their property taxes on their on their homes and on their property. So, 
this is this is has affected every sector, uh, unlike previous uh, recessions or previous uh, cutbacks. So one question that I have, Jonathan, um, and thank you for all that perspective. It's great to have somebody with so much experience uh, on 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 the conversation with us today. So um, I was just a little kid when the swine flu epidemic hit in 1976. I was like five. But I remember, you know, all of the news and all of the inquiries and everything. Um, has anybody ever correlated other prior sort of large scale economic analysis around, you know, widespread pandemic type impacts? Have you ever run across anything like that at the macroeconomic level and what that looks like in terms of policy and decision making? Yeah, in fact, there there were government uh, policies and guidance coming out of the H1N1 uh, and the swine as to how government entities and how uh, employment laws were impacted or affected by uh, those pandemics. But the, the key difference here, which there, to me, I don't know of a comparison, is the broader scope of this particular pandemic, which we're having shut down and stay in place so that uh, so that the sources of revenue are being um, uh, massively disrupted. So during the H1N1 and the swine, people continued going to work. There were precautions being taken. There were uh, immunizations that were being made available. Uh, there were there was care being given. But the the reaction this time it, to shut down um, to shut down commerce effectively uh, it, it doesn't have a precedent that I'm aware of. Um, and I've yet to see anything, Michael, that really um, described uh, the corollaries and the differences between the the swine flu and the H1N1 uh, epidemics uh, and this one. So we from, are, a, from a macroeconomic standpoint. So we're in, we're in uncharted territory for that. Interesting. Yeah, Jonathan. But uh, I do. Uh, yeah. Uh, Go ahead. Quick, quick question. So as we're seeing, um, you know, in, in a larger counties, uh, you know, the Franklin counties, the Hamilton counties, the Cuyahoga counties. Uh, just using our example, I know you're very familiar with how the Hamilton County Commission and how the, the Hamilton County government operates. And we've got these big uh, centers that are traditional malls that have all these restaurants and shops, and they're really kind of entwined in our county budget processes. Could you kind of break that down a little bit from your perspective and how that revenue decrease and collapse is going to affect the essential services that people count on? Well, right off the bat, John, you're going to, you're, uh, if, if gasoline sales are down 50 to 60 percent, I'd have to assume that the sales tax that's generated by uh, bricks and mortar stores in your malls uh, in various places uh, in Ohio are also going to be uh, on a massive decline. And I don't see it being replaced by the online sales, even with the Supreme Court decision that allows uh, states to tax online sales. I don't see that as replacing the bricks and mortar sales tax um, for many reasons. I, I haven't seen any reports yet that have indicated how much is coming in, and even though Amazon is ramping up and hiring another 100,000 people and trucks of Amazon are going up and down everybody's driveway, it will not, in my opinion, replace the amount of sales tax. The effect and impact directly answering your question, John, is that the essential services that a county provides um, and cities, for that matter, as well. So let's let's make this court. Let's make this uh, apply to both: are the are police, fire, and water and sewer and streets. So you take those four uh, separate categories: uh, police and fire, uh, public works, 
the public works are set on on revenue funds that are established by fees used on tap fees, water fees, and sewer fees. So those won't see quite the impact as long as the use is there. The police and fire are almost entirely uh, funded by general fund revenues, which, as I said earlier, for cities is income tax, for counties is sales tax, and the jails, don't forget the jails, we're going to need to shut down portions of the jail, which means we're not going to be able to house as many prisoners as we did before. Already we're seeing reductions in the staffing that cities are putting on the fire departments. They're reducing their, their daily staffing levels uh, for two reasons. One, to keep people healthy, keep them away from the job uh, that are out there as first responders, but also two, to reduce the amount of overtime costs. So the more progressive cities that I work with are already cutting overtime budgets, already cutting any additional uh, expenditures or, or uh, purchases. And John and Mike, here's another interesting thought that because we also represent universities. Uh, I think you're gonna see, see a, a game changer in the way universities operate. Look at the University of Cincinnati, Ohio State, Cleveland State, take any of the state universities who've been building lots of, lots of buildings. Students aren't gonna be coming back this fall and they're not gonna to wanna, to, they're not going to take out loans because they're afraid of, of, of whether, uh, whether or not they're gonna be able to get a job to pay back a loan. I think you're going to see a seismic shift in the way that higher education operates as well, especially since many of them, including a, a student uh, from a local university here in, in Granville, uh, is living at our house uh, because he can't go home to India, and uh, he's doing all of his classes online. So even the small liberal arts schools are, are going to move over to that. You're going to see you're going to see a reduction in the student populations, which is going to, for the city of Cincinnati, means fewer students which means the ones who come and spend money aren't going to be coming and spending money. Right. Well, so that kind of brings up a topic that Jonathan and I kick around. So of course we're, you know, 10 XTS is a technology company and we're focused on the more financial technology, FinTech, but we track tech just in general and in particular, uh, you know, the kinds of process automations and efficiencies that are created by technology and even the local school districts, you know, parents are getting a taste of being able to have um, their kids, you know, have remote instruction and, you know, but then there are districts that are complete woefully behind in their technology capabilities and parents are struggling and it's all over the map. And then that just leads to the question in general around, the idea that if government is in the process of scaling down is digital transformation, you know, what, what's it, what does that impact look like on, you know, state and local operations? I think it's going to be fantastic. I think it's fantastic in the sense that we're going to see, we're going to see tremendous efficiencies. Uh, I, it'll take a little while to ramp up uh, efficiencies in those areas where we can put technology to work. But you don't, you, you can't have a, a robocop out there uh, or a robo firefighter paramedic out there. Right. It's still going to take the people, and uh, and those folks, uh, understandably, are asking for more considerations uh, given given the situation we have out there. Mm -hmm. But staying with education for just a minute, Mike, you have um, article last week's Wall Street Journal professor at Berkeley uh, concerned about the. City of Berkeley schools were not doing any digital education because they were afraid a few people would not be able to have access to it. So, as we go to digital, we have to make sure we have access as well. Right, I mean, right. can't leave anybody behind. Agreed. 
Agreed. And that just to me that translates back into more public sector, you know, public access to technology and public interfaces, wherever, however that occurs within that context. But I feel like that that still contributes to that tidal wig seismic shift in seeking for solutions where it might have been optional before, but absolutely not any longer. Right. Correct. Absolutely correct. And then I wonder what's going on with these guys. I guess, Jonathan, this is a good segue if you want to, you know, raise the whole public financing and, you know, what's this look like for sure. you know, municipal borrowing right now and <laughs> poor people that had uh, levy issues on the primary ballot that is still in a suspended state of animation. Well, and I, well, I'd argue, too, that I, I would think, and, and Jonathan, especially at the city or the county or the local level or even the state level, the way... We, we tax uh, goods and services and property. I would think that that would have to also uh, be detailed and analyzed. I know a lot of times the, the tendency for government is to kick the can, but I don't know if there's you know a foot big enough to kick this can. I mean, this is going to take some pretty interesting uh, creativity and a lot of thought, pensive thought and um, uh, an organization to find out those efficiencies. And I'd be curious to see what your thoughts are from especially the public financing on the, on the school systems and then in our local cities and police and fire shops, how are we going to be able to navigate this if the assumption is we're going to see at least a 25 to 35% drop in, in funding in the next couple of months? Well, first of all, you're, all, of, all the folks in New York and Chicago, bond readings are going to, are going to come back and reassess all of these in terms of what's the, what's the long-term ability for the, for the jurisdiction to pay the money back as, as they would for any debtor. And so the bond ratings may or may not be uh, impacted immediately. I don't think they will. It's going to take a little bit of time. I think they have to give the opportunity to come out of this, but I think it's going to hurt the bond ratings uh, long-term if the uh, jurisdictions don't uh, reduce their uh, demand on expenses uh, because of the, of, of the reduction in, in revenue. So the expenditures and the revenues have, have got to correlate. Uh, the old rule under the Government Finance Officers Association, GFOA standard of you need to have 16 to 17% in your carryover balance. I think the bond uh, houses are going to say no. You should have more like forty or fifty percent carryover, which wow. then means coming yeah. back to coming back to Ohio, uh, we have we have a, a massive collective bargaining bill here that is um, results in binding arbitration for safety forces, where an arbitrator can come in and decide. I don't, it doesn't matter what your carryover is. This is a fair rate of money. This is a fair rate of pay for these individuals. So. Having dealt with that, I think that you're going to have the potential for um, uh, contracts, union contracts being uh, uh, decided by an outside arbitrator that are then going to result in one of two things, either raising taxes or uh, reducing services. Hmm. Mm, that raising taxes phrase again it seems to be popping up everywhere. <laughs> well, well, and I... This this is a time I don't think it's going to happen. You know, in the last couple of years, if you if you watch, uh, when the economy got better, there were a lot of local governments that did increase their taxes. The one of the things that uh, from the prior administration economic policy was to push the funding of local levels back back down the local levels. My case in point would be libraries. 
the library fund was cut uh, in half to begin with, and then some of that restored, which then resulted in many local libraries passing, uh, putting on the ballot and getting tax levies passed. Over, it was over 85% of the library levies passed because Ohioans love their libraries, understandably so. Well, and then you had cities like Columbus increase their income tax several years ago by 25% when they went from 2.0 to 2.5% income tax. Uh, they were taking advantage of the good times. I don't believe they're going to have that. I think you're going to have the call on government to reduce the amount of tax that, that, that's, uh, that's levied. Uh, I think that the schools, uh, importantly, going cycling back to the digital learning process, if we can digitally teach a lot of kids, then how many classrooms do you need to maintain? One of the interesting impacts on this as I'm listening and processing um, that I hadn't really considered is what is the what is the impact on the institutional capital side from the collective bargaining and these government uh, union type folks, um, their major buy side for an awful lot of capital markets and, uh, you know, financial investment. And, you know, you're talking about also reducing significantly the, the uh, amount of available capital coming into the capital markets over the next, what, you know, 24 months, maybe. I mean, I don't know what the cycle is to finally roll upstream in a significant way for that. But, you know, based on that idea, what are, what are your thoughts in terms of capital availability from the fixed income desk guys? I don't, I think it's going to be basically frozen for about six months, which also negatively impacts local governments because that means they that whatever rates they're at right now, they're gonna to have to stay at. Uh, some of them are fortunate enough to get in and negotiate lower rates uh, before the boom fell. Um, but for everybody else, they're not gonna be able to get in and renegotiate anything because now their revenue stream is going to be examined. And even if there is uh, money sitting there ready to be invested, there's gonna be a lot more, um, a lot more attention given to the, the core costs and one of the core costs in every city county and township is personnel uh, school districts run anywhere from 70 to 75 percent personnel costs and if they hit 70 my opinion they're too high which means that there's only 30 percent left to run everything else including the buildings and the buses uh, and the lunch rooms so if you don't have that then things start to deteriorate so I, you're looking at a cycle here for the funding for bonds. Uh, the, the question then is, what, what do you need a bond for? If it's for a water or wastewater plant, well, that's on service fees. So that probably won't be so bad because that's, that's the amount of hookups that they have. But bonds to build a new building, bonds to, to, to buy new fire trucks or, or whatever else they're purchasing, it's going to be much more difficult for them uh, given the uh, the higher percentage of personnel costs that they're going to have after they cut out everything else, right. which they're doing. They're already doing it. Hmm. Yeah, Jonathan, yeah, uh, I, quick, yeah. quick question on the state budget. So as most folks know in Ohio, constitutionally speaking, we have a balanced budget requirement and uh, it's a biennium budget. And normally in a year like this, we would have something called a, an MBR, which would be uh, a tweak on the state budget to either make corrections upwards or downwards, depending on where the budget lies in that cycle. Um, how do you see, from your experience dealing with the state budget in the past, how do you see the administration coming to terms with 
the challenges that's going to be facing uh, in the next six months as they try to wrap through this budget year? Find all the revenue you can and cut all expenses that you can. And finding revenue is going to be the most challenging. Uh, cutting expenses, it's going to be uh, basically, I think it's going to be personnel costs. Uh, that's the one area where state government, um, outside of, of guaranteed payments, your Medicaid, Medicare, uh, and those things, um, that, that's, that is the major, major cost. O, as, as an example, right now, ODOT has frozen all of its capital improvement projects that it possibly can. The Ohio Turnpike Commission has frozen their projects, uh, capital projects, but both are, are keeping all employees on payroll full time, even though they're not out working right now. So that's the immediate reaction is you know, we've got to get people, we got to ramp back up to to some sense of uh, how do you get people working without the fear and the, and the concomitant fear, which is uh, if they go back to work, are they going to get infected and uh, are they going to get the, the, the virus? So you're balancing you're balancing economic policy with the sentiment of a of the, of the public and if you go back and think about it you know the morale of the public was one of the key issues throughout any conflict that we've ever had the morale of the public take your take your conflict and the morale was always the first thing you had to deal with so long term the state budget i think you're going to see some some major structural changes there so i guess Back to the sort of, sort of the technology vector. Um, private sector has had this magical thing called a disaster recovery plan for a very long time. And not just, you know, it was driven out of like the IT department and how do we recover, you know, computer operations. But having been in government IT operations for a significant portion of my career, it seems like that this is an obvious thing that we've somehow or another missed not just in it but then you know all the way to policy and governance <laughs> like budget like what happens if and i know the feds do that sort of you know modeling and planning and sending people into cheyenne mountain and you know whatever whatever to preserve the republic but you know it would seem like that this is also a gap area in policy and administration i don't know it just feels weird well, agreed. Using using the first example of that we discussed about you know, a distance learning, uh, the second the second application is remote work. Um, I have a son-in-law who's in the forestry division of, of, of state of Virginia, and his job is to make sure massive areas of the forest are in fine shape. And he works remotely and has for several years uh, from his from his home in in. Um, and Blacksburg, Virginia. So you're looking at you're looking at wider adaptation of a technology process that's been there because now we're going, now we're seeing that we can we can telework uh, that we have that option. And so the question is, how much of it can we do with public employees uh, and the same issue with private sector and trust that the employees are actually getting their work done? Mm -hmm. You know, I love to telework because I don't have to commute into Columbus, so I telecommute. Uh, constantly telework constantly on this so I, I think a lot of that Michael is really just simply the attitude of overcoming the fear of turning on a computer sure yep I, I agree well, I mean, if you can teach parents if, if you can teach parents how, how to homeschool 
uh, because well, that's now what that Jonathan 40, and I we were talking yeah. about just for our own. We're both parents, and you know, my school yeah. district has you know, I live in Preble County, Eaton, Ohio, and um, small county, tiny county seat. And our little school district has actually done admirably well in terms of instruction delivery and having the ability, and then relating that experience to even like Jonathan's district and other bigger districts that are nowhere near as far along with E Day. Right. Oh, that's right. That's right. I mean, the lesson plans come, but it's, um, you know, these classrooms, you know, they've grown in the last several years from 20 kids a room to 28. And, um, you know, the the one-on-one attention that the teachers were giving the kids changed, of course, with that. Uh, But I think what's going to be a really interesting social experiment as, as parents are taking over that primary responsibility for educating their kids and making sure the lessons plans are accomplished what is, you know, what is our public education process going to look like next year? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a totally different ballgame. And how are people going to look at school levies moving in the future? And, you know, what is remote look, learning going to look like for the younger kids as well? I, we're kind of in some new uncharted territory with technology. Well, you got guys like Dr. Julian down in Kentucky, you know, at, um, at his university running nothing but, co- you know, teleworking, co-working. Um, That's right. Remote. So Cumberland in Kentucky. Well, in, in Purdue University several years ago, bought Kaplan online learning. Oh, did they really? I, they were, that. I didn't realize that. They, they're, year, they're years ahead on it. I mean, smaller universities like Ashland University has an online MBA. Uh, and the number, you're going to see more and more of that for undergraduate, not just the graduate work. And I think that uh, the key issue... Uh, primary education, secondary education, is how those who participate in the process begin to learn how to do it in a different way. And I don't mean, I don't mean just the teachers. I mean the school board members, uh, the superintendents, the administrators, um, the union officials have to understand, you know, the public's going to push back, so we've got to figure out how to do this in, in a, a more effective, efficient manner, because now we have these extra tools out there. And at the same time, making the, making the concerted efforts to make sure that those kids in the parts of the state, and I don't mean just down in, in, in the rural areas, I mean in the inner cities as well. I mean, a little city of Zanesville, the Muskingum County, the library turned on its Wi-Fi and made its parking lot a hotspot for the kids in, that were in houses that couldn't get to, couldn't get high-speed internet. Mm-hmm. I mean, creative, yeah. little creative things like that on a day-to-day basis. Uh, is what's going to have to happen here because we can't uh, we, we can't wire every house, uh, but we we can provide we can provide uh, a lot of things. Uh, yeah, but it's no, it's not all going to be done for everybody across the board equally. It's, it it never has, never will be. Yeah, and especially those rural communities that don't even have the last mile broadband. It's going to be an interesting challenge. Well, I think that's one of the things we're going to see. I think the state's responsibility is to continue. I mean, what have we had four or five efforts on that already, all of which have not have not succeeded in, in coming to uh, fruition. And I don't think you're going to get every nook and cranny uh, up and down in the rural areas. In the same way that you're not going to you're not going to have every kid in the sit inner city who's going to have a laptop or access to a computer to do their work. That's right. I mean, it's it's it just it's just as important in the urban urban areas as it is in the rural areas. Well, as Jonathan and I, we talked about this potentially if there's going to be a phase four stimulus or what this looks like, uh, you know, the resurrection of an infrastructure bill type of a a conversation from a federal policy standpoint. 
who's advocating for the digital? You know, I know that the space defense program and, you know, all of the new stuff is supposed to be the digital and the, you know, the, the growth hackers, you know, the techie guys. And um, to what degree do we start a conversation about digital networks, digital infrastructure being a public utility to a certain degree? Yeah, it'll be an interesting well, conversation. And that's also, yeah, and, and, then, and then you've got your, your uh, uh, different spectrums uh, for um, uh, being able to get the, uh, what's the newest one called, five and six now, yeah. uh, the newest so levels G. of connectivities. So they're out there, and, and then, you know, what company has what, what rights to those that were sold off earlier? Do we, do we take those back, and, and how, much, how much does government control us? Well, they need to control, have control of the airways, but they definitely should not be controlling the companies that, that put, out the, put out the product because the, the company should be left with that. Well, it's going to get yeah, interesting you. because, you know, BlackRock was just appointed to be the uh, analyst to make recommendations to the uh, Federal Reserve for what private equity uh, that they're going to purchase on the open market. <laughs> so this ought to be interesting. So let me throw one more idea, just, just for Ohio, not just for Ohio, but for every pension system in the country. Because, it, you know, Ohio, we're fortunate. In California, Illinois, not so on their pensions and where they are and the debt load that is. That's another factor here that, that it, it, a lot of people go into the professions, in, into the public sector, because there's good, there's good health insurance, there's good benefits, and there's good pensions. But the pensions, if the rate of return is going to go way down, and the, the managers that are there now for all the Ohio pensions get, get paid regardless of whether or not the, the monies that they manage make money or not. Right. Uh, I think we're going to see some changes there. There's, there's a, a quantitative, quantitative analysis uh, options that are out there that, that are not being used. And then you look at if those, if those uh, subside, how are they going to fund it? There are, there are cities in, um, cities in California now that are paying 40, 50% of their budget into the pension systems because, of, because it came, became upside down before, the la before two recessions ago. So you look at you look at a little impact on the budgeting, uh, Michael. Going back a, a couple steps, what we discussed another impact on state, local governments in Ohio, is uh, making sure that you know the, the pension systems are adequately funded going forward, and they're okay right now. But that was before the that was before this crisis. Boy, that we we talked a lot about that problem, and I feel like that one's still above my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> well, the one thing we know for sure is that there's going to be a lot of unintended consequences of um, this unique economic circumstance. I, I don't think anybody really fully appreciates the uh, the size of the wave that theoretically could come our way. And so, Jonathan, just thank you for sharing your thoughts on state, local, county, city, government. Uh, I know you're going to be extremely busy helping out a lot of your clients in the in the months to come, and Thank you for sharing your thoughts and ideas with us as we try to navigate some of the issues that are out there and, and help folks that need access to good information. Thank you yeah, again for coming. Yeah, definitely appreciate it. Thank you so much for your wisdom and your willingness to share. It's my pleasure. And I think that we're looking at opportunities uh, and it's not all dark clouds. I think there's plenty of opportunities out there. I think we're going to see some reinventing here that in the long, long term is going to be good. I, I think so too. Agreed. Again, thank you, Jonathan. Appreciate you coming on. It's my pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you. Have a great day. You too.
Hey, it's Michael again. Jonathan and I will be right back for our retrospective and analysis of our conversation with our guest. But before we jump back in, I wanted to give you a quick shout out as a listener. Thank you. I also wanted to invite you to subscribe to our email inbox newsletter where you'll get alerts about new episodes there first, along with other industry and market news, insights, and analysis. 10XTS, that's 10XTS dot substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. Go there, 10XTS dot substack dot com. It's free and it comes out at least once a week, sometimes more if things are really moving. We always try to put out stuff that helps folks navigate through the changes happening at light speed. 10xts.substack.com. Go there. All right, let's get back to the show. Well, Mike, what did I tell you? I, you know. Oh, man, what an amazing conversation. Right. I mean, this, uh, I knew we'd get some good content out of this, but it goes right back to what we were saying a couple of weeks ago, which is, everything's interconnected, right? I mean, everything, the, from the, from the bus, you know, bus boy at the restaurant to the server, to the, to the, you know, the local bank, to the drivers, to, I mean, it's all interconnected and all of that, all that muscle, whether it's, you know, five cents or $5 billion, all of those interactions is what drives our economy and what makes our government work. It's what funds everything. Well, so everybody is on edge, afraid of what their future looks like, especially, you know, as that moves down to the most vulnerable members of our society. But, you know, you've got middle class, upper middle class folks, even that are, you know, reasonable household income earners that are now scared to death. And I know that one of the things that um, you and I talked about offline, Jonathan, um, in a separate discussion was this stimulus and this money is designed to really, you know, keep money flowing in the economy. However, when people are unsure what the heck's going on, I'm not quite so sure that, you know, uh, you know, on average, what about thirty-five, $3,400 on average household of four, you know, parents with kids is, going to represent freewheeling <laughs> it's just like hey let's just spend more money at this point right i mean we're going to batten down the hatches and nobody's going to spend a dime and then the economy does not move still well not- i mean here's the thing about the the you know the, the two components there right the first is the helicopter money that's being set at a cap of 75,000 to 90,000 there's a phase out per individual married couples double that at, so, I mean, the thought process on that is that's really going to provide some immediate relief for your, um, your, your day-to-day, your week-to-week, your paycheck-to-paycheck worker. But the problem is it's been like in Ohio, we're on uh, hibernation day number 26. So if you're somebody who needs a weekly paycheck, you're three weeks into this. So that's the hard part is how do you help those? Most of your middle-class families can survive that, you know, a couple of months if they've been diligent and at least have an emergency fund. But statistically, even in the middle class, only like 70% don't even have an extra thousand bucks for something that happens. So they use their credit card. So right now I'd be really interested to see what the use of credit is. It has been in the last couple of weeks, but you know, bigger picture, um, you know, what we're, what we're advocating for in that pay, payroll protection loan was 
that free flow of income going into these businesses and keeping those those local government taxes flowing, right? That was the thought process behind the policy consideration. But I don't know, I, it gets me back to what I was saying um, earlier today to a friend of mine. And, you know, when you have moments of crisis, there's two options. You can either cower in fear and be weak and let it get the best of you, or you can get to work, put on your thinking cap, learn as much as you can and come out of it stronger than you entered it. What's well, the old Those saying are, that uh, fortune favors the bold? Yeah, it is. But I think today it's different. I mean, we're in this country where everybody's sitting at home. You've got most people, um, you know, vast majority of people, I'd say at least 80% of Americans have access to some sort of a technology that allows them to connect to the web, right? On a daily basis, they have the ability to um, learn and see and gain information. You can get yourself a finance degree by watching YouTube nowadays. You don't need to go to Harvard or Yale or your local college to get that information. It's available for free right in your phone or in your laptop. And this is the time for not only trying to improve yourself, but there are new opportunities that are developing. So our local governments, I think the takeaway from what Jonathan was saying, need to get smarter, more efficient, lean, and learn how to uh, evolve into what's coming because our old practices of doing things politically need to change too. And government is really slow to change, right? I mean, very, very slow. The last. <laughs> it's the last. It's always the last. It's by right? design, it's, right? I mean, that's supposed it is. to be. <laughs> it, it is. And, and that's, and that's a good thing. It's always, I always tell people, you know, in my, when I'm wearing my lawyer hat and they say, we need an answer today. I said, no, you, it's okay. Six months from now, sometimes is the right approach. And they don't understand it at first, but typically it takes that long to get people to understand the gravity of their decisions. And it also takes that long to get all the facts. Well, right? to the point, that's what literally we're dealing with right now. In case that's in point, if we're crea- going to create broad sweeping brushstroke policy changes all at once really fast. And, um, you know, not think through, you know, certainly some of the unintended consequences of the impact of these things, like the circular firing squad of state and local government budgets. So yeah, you called it. Yeah. Uh, it, so it, it wasn't unforeseeable. It was definitely foreseeable, but it's, Absolutely. we're going to have some adjustments to make and there's going to be a lot of decisions that'll have to be made from, uh, you know, the top down and from the bottom up. And I, the one thing I would say with all this is that as, you know, as, difficult as this is to absorb and understand, you know, learn as much as you can and then come to terms with it and then figure out how to chart forward, right? If, especially if you're an elected official, you've got to come to terms with some of these realities and you can't say to somebody who's lo- who's literally lost everything, they can't pay their bills, that you're in it with them because you're not and you've got to identify with them and figure out how to meet that need. And our local governments are not all the same, right? There's some that are better off than others and so it's going to take a lot of creativity from, honestly, guys like you, Mike, that, that create software and solve complex problems. And that's what we're really going to be needing here in the weeks to months to come. Yeah. So with all of our background and experience and everything that we've done to try to bring solutions to the table for, um, you know, intersection of government into a lot of these things, um, you know, we've got a bunch of areas where we know that we're able to help solve problems around, you know, this now decentralized workforce, you know, the, the government is, you know, certainly, you know, 
staring at a whole bunch of different types of information systems problems and you know how do we process these things so you know obviously we we've got tools we've got uh you know an, an amazing team of, of a whole bunch of really smart folks and um you know if a local official a state official a federal official is you know confronting challenges and thinking through these things we're we're, we're literally here to serve and we started out uh developing towards the future knowing that at some point something was going to be our inflection point as a company and as a you know solutions provider to bring an, a, a novel approaches to the table and i feel like that 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 time is now so i encourage anybody um who is listening to this to don't hesitate reach out have a conversation with us we're we're literally here to help you out and um would love to would love to chat yeah, so Mike, we got some great guys coming up here in the next episode or two. Um, we're going to have uh, a representative from the National Real Estate Investors Association up on our next oh, program. Sweet. Yeah, yeah, he's a great guy, and he's connected with all of these property owners all across the country in all fifty states. And he's right here in our our, our neck of the woods. He's a good friend. Um, he's constantly in Washington D.C. talking about. Uh, those types of issues. He works with HUD. He works with the SBA. So we're going to have him on in our next episode. A lot of good information there for people, especially if you've got an investment property. That could be as simple as, you know, you, your very first house, you never sold it and you just moved and you decided to keep renting it. Or, you know, your grandparents' home that you know, they passed away, they gave it to you and you didn't sell it and you're renting it. Guess what? You're a landlord. And so these types of situations, they could, they're gonna impact you because the folks that are renting are also being impacted by a lot of the decisions that are being made. So uh, we'll have him on. It's gonna be an awesome half an hour. I'm looking forward to it. Excellent, I can't wait. All right, well, I guess this brings us to a close of yet another episode of The Digital Dollar. And I wanna thank everybody for listening in. See you next time. This episode is brought to you by 10XTS. 10XTS is powering the next generation of capital markets with automated trust. 10XTS simplifies the secured issuance, tracking, and compliance of digitized real-world financial assets across global markets and jurisdictions. Better financial asset information management and security with more organization and tighter control helps everyone achieve a greater level of trust and more liquidity across all asset classes. To discover how 10XTS can help you enter the next economy, check out our site, 10XTS.com. That's 10XTS.com. 